Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, current, and cult films. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer's Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night. And I'm pleased to welcome our guest tonight, Major Rory Hawkeye Elward, a two-tour combat veteran of the Afghan campaign and the military technical advisor for projects as varied as Ed Zwick's Courage Under Fire to Amy Palladino's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But his favorite project was his Christmas drama collaboration for the Hallmark Channel, Silent Night, which he developed and co-produced with me. Most recently, Rory wrote and directed the short film, The 5th of January. Welcome, Rory Elward. Thank you, brother. Good to, good to, good to, good to be in the, in the airways with you again. Well, you know something? Um, it's now 20 years since Silent Night, which is scary as all get out. Say it but, I, <laughs> but I still remember the night we drove home from the location outside Montreal and I insisted on playing a Frank Sinatra song, uh, The Tender Trap, about 37 times in a row. <laughs> which, was, which was more than it was played around the world that week, probably. <laughs> Rory and I go way back, everybody. Uh, I really, you know, Rory's one of my favorite people in the world, not only because we both discuss military films ad nauseum, but it's just... He's a great guy, and um, we developed this great movie that if you haven't seen, it's called Silent Night, and it's a true story set in World War II on Christmas Eve 1944 during the Battle of the Bulge when German and American combat troops were invited into a cabin in the Ardennes by a German woman who insisted on a truce for about 10 hours, and the resultant camaraderie led them to leave, leaving the next day as friends. One of the more extraordinary incidents of World War II and certainly amazing that it was a true story. Good times, good times. Good times. Uh, before we start talking about our subject tonight, which will be war films, I just wanna talk a little bit about Angela Lansbury, who we lost today at the age of 96. and. I have to say, uh, I pay attention to great performances like we all do, but her performance as the mother of Lawrence Harvey in The Manchurian Candidate back in 62 is one of the most chilling portrayals of any woman in the history of cinema as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's funny because if you read about Angela Lansbury, a sweeter, more <laughs> polished, wonderful woman there, wa there was, and you know, she uh, she was kind of bristling at times because there was they were always kind of casting her to play tough women and uh, women with dark paths. And um, uh, certainly uh, the mother figure in that movie is quite extraordinary. You remember her, Rory. Oh, yes. Actually, I, uh, I have my own Angela Lansbury story uh, because when I was a junior in high school, um, they, they, you know, put us on buses and they took us down to New York City and I saw Angela Lansbury and Sweeney Todd on Broadway. And she had an extraordinary career on Broadway. I think oh, she has five yeah. Tonys. Yeah, yeah. She, and it's funny because so many people just think of her um, from Murder, She Wrote. And her career was so much broader and deeper and more spectacular than, than Murder, She Wrote. And yet, because that was, you know, television and a generation of people grew up with her that's how they think of her but she was so so much more than that absolutely and and a, a family of entertainers going back to i believe her grandfather and then her brother bruce lansbury was a top television producer when i was assigned as a unit publicist in 1982 to porky's 2 <laughs> of all people of all excuse me of all pictures I was met at the airport as I arrived in Miami that summer by James Lansbury, her oh, nephew, wow. who was uh, was a production assistant on the production. And if James, if you're listening, I have fond memories of the way you treated me with respect, even though I was uh, I was hardly a VIP in those days. I was a PR guy. But I have to also mention the fact that Angela is also in one of the great comedies of all time, The Court Jester with Danny Kaye. <laughs> 
I mean, she's she is the daughter of the king, and she's the one who wants to who falls in love with Danny Kaye's character, and uh, she has a um, a handmaiden. I think her name is Griselda, played by Hermione Gingle, maybe if I'm not mistaken. Wow. And she's the one with the evil eye, and of course she's the one who trains uh, um, Danny Kaye's character, this this kind of fumbling jester to become the greatest swordsman. It's just a classic repartee, and Angela's very much not playing a tough, hardened woman in this movie. She's actually playing, you know, kind of a, a fun, frilly, uh, beautiful princess, which I think she probably enjoyed. How, how could you not on that set? But... <laughs> And, and I and I I love that she's Mrs. Potts in Beauty and the Beast. You know, it's just... no, I mean she's a teapot. I mean, what was her motivation? <laughs> um, well, you know, when Rory and I first met, long before we got Silent Night off the ground, we I was developing a feature version of Combat at that time. Although the movie never got off the ground, uh, we had some spirited discussions on how to get it off the ground. And at one point, we had dear sweet Bruce Willis attached to play Sergeant Saunders. And if you're familiar with the original ABC television series, the part of Saunders was played by Vic Morrow. And if ever there was a great infantry sergeant portrayal in the history of cinema or television for that matter, it was Vic Morrow. And Bruce, I think, would have done a great job, don't you think? Oh yeah, absolutely. He had the um he definitely had the chops for it and and when you see him in a movie like uh, you know, Tears of the Sun, um he definitely has the, you know, the the gravitas that you need for a role like that. Well, um on the subject of war movies, I certainly was a student of them from an early age, growing up in the late 1950s. I mean, if you went into my room, You'd see my Sergeant Rock and our Army at War comic books on the table, along with our fighting forces and all American men at war. You would think that I was a total warmonger, but I was just really interesting. I mean, I was really interested in World War II history, and I was getting it from the comic books. I was getting it from regular books. There was a series of historical books for young readers called Landmark. And oh, the yes. Landmark, yeah, the Landmark books had, Landmark you know, they had from... From uh, from Pearl Harbor to Okinawa was one of the titles. They had great American fighter pilots of World War II, the story of D-Day. I mean, I, there was it was all all World War II stuff, and this was in the late '50s, so the war was only a little over ten years old. So there was still very much, and then of course the movies had started to appear during the war. And uh, that's those are the movies I was seeing on television. Rory, can you remember some of the first war movie titles you saw as a kid? When when I was when I was a kid, I would. My father was an enormous movie buff. My father was was one of those guys who could tell you who the extras were on the old Warner Brothers movies from back from the from the forties. Um, and I remember, you know, since. Since I can remember, I was watching movies with my dad, and, and I literally thought that um, I could not tell the difference between the news and 12 o'clock high. I thought it was like the news. I thought that, you know, Gregory Peck was, was, was uh, you know, flying B-17s over the Reich in uh, 1968. So I was a very confused child, Steve, as you probably figured out. <laughs> Well, you know, I um, I was recreating those battles with my little toy soldiers. I, I, you know, I was an only child, so I had to entertain myself most of the time. And I uh, was uh, just purchasing large quantities of army men. Yes. And, and, and little Rocco tanks that were manufactured in Austria. And I was trying to... Uh, and then I, I discovered that if I borrowed my mother's talcum powder and I poured it on all the tanks, it looked like a snow scene. See? Which, which is which is more than you can say for the movie The Battle of the Bulge, where nothing looks like a snow scene. So. <laughs> it was shot in the desert. Um, <laughs> yes, Battle of the Bulge had some snow problems uh, in Spain that year. Uh, I remember yes. intervie interviewing the producer, and he was lamenting the fact that they were recreating these great tank battles on the plains of the Ardennes, and of course they didn't have any snow. It looked like uh, it looked like Libya. There you go. 
And Olympia was a lot closer than the R10, probably. <laughs> well, when I decided to write a book about war films right after college, I made a list of films that um, I would approach the filmmakers for, because the, the key to my research was based on my success at Cinefantastic magazine in writing the history of movies by actually interviewing the people who made them. And I was very fortunate. Um, one of the movies that we covered, uh, I covered actually technically the first movie in the book because they were done chronologically, was Lewis Milestone's A Walk in the Sun. And I know that's one of your favorites. Yes, absolutely. Um, if, if for no other reason than the, than the dialogue. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, Harry Brown, who wrote the book, and he was a war correspondent for Yank magazine uh, in, in Europe, and he was based in Italy. Uh, actually, he was based all over the place. And I think he, he uh, was very much the inspiration for one of uh, another war film project that Rory and I developed uh, uh, called uh, Cut Off, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But Harry wrote the book, which was published, I believe, toward the end of the war. And then Lewis Milestone, uh, the great filmmaker, and if you're not familiar with the name, he directed All Quiet on the Western Front, which was considered one of the, and still is considered one of the most amazing and emotional World War, actually war films of all time, it was World War One, and then went on to do films after A Walk in the Sun, like Pork Chop Hill, um, and uh, Halls of Montezuma, which was about the U.S. Marines in the Pacific. But I, I, I agree with you. I think that if, you're, if you listen to the dialogue in A Walk in the Sun, it's basically soldiers talking most likely what soldiers did in that time. And I think there was a sense of realism about it. Wouldn't you agree, Rory? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's just, I mean, you, you can always, uh, you know, one of the things that goes back and forth about war films is like, when do people talk and when don't they talk? But I think that the... Um, I, I think the, the conversations seem very natural. You know, people talk about everything and nothing when you have nothing but time in your hands. And of course, you know, you're talking about a, a time when there are, you know, there's not, nobody has a, a phone. Nobody's got anything. It's just like what, what you have is the people around you. Um, and so the conversations just, you know, the, you know, we're going to the battle of Tibet from, you know, talking about just anything. Um, and, and, I, and I think that, um, that Brown captured that very well. Well, you being the military technical advisor, advising a director on how to position his infantry troops as they're marching across the, the Italian mainland, I would think that probably realistically they were probably spaced a little bit further apart. Would you agree? Well, I, I think, I mean, the, the problem you have when you're making uh, just about any film is that you want to everybody to be on camera. So if everybody's spread out the way they would be in real life, they're not on camera. <laughs> so it's, it's, there's, there's, a, there's a typical you know, Hollywood contraction of people that you don't see in real life. Um, and there's certainly a lot less dialogue because everybody's spread out and depending on the situation, nobody's talking. Um, but that would, that, would, that would be you know, tough sledding for a lot of war films, so. Kind of reminds me of a discussion I had about uh, Fury, the Brad Pitt tank movie from a few yeah. years ago, that in reality, those Shermans would not be so close, close oh, together no. on the road. Yeah, no, not, not, not remotely. I mean, the, the goal, especially, you know, going against a tank like, like the Tiger with a, with, a, with a slow turret traverse is, is that you, you want to make them work to change, you know, they're going to get one of you, but you don't want to make it easy to get the rest of you because you're trying to close the distance to the Tiger. So, yeah, you'd come at it from as, as wide an angle as you could, and you certainly wouldn't be that close together. But, you know, they're, they're trying to get all the production value of having that many tanks. Right, right. No, exactly. If you haven't seen A Walk in the Sun, it's basically about an infantry platoon of the 36th Texas Division that lands at Salerno uh, in September 1943, which begins the Italian campaign. And... Uh, Dana Andrews, certainly a uh, main actor of the 40s. Uh, I actually was just watching him today in a, a horror movie of all, of all things, Curse of the Demon from 1957. But Dana Andrews plays Sergeant Tyne, uh, who's uh, from Providence, Rhode Island, um, 
as, as Burgess Meredith says in the opening narration, a one-town man. And then, <laughs> then you've got Richard Conte as Private Rivera, who is an Italian. Uh, I, have to, I have to quote uh, Meredith because I, I hear it in the car a lot. I, I, have, I have that little <laughs> narration thing. Let's say, he says, uh, Rivera, Italian-American, likes opera and a wife and kids. Plenty of kids. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get to um, you get to John Ireland, who plays Wendy, and Wendy is another private, private Wendy, and he's a minister's son from Canton, Ohio. He used to take long walks alone and just think. And I tell you, Rory, when I go on my long walks, I pretend I'm Wendy. <laughs> That's good to know, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> See, some people wear the headphones and they just listen to music, etc. I'm just thinking. <laughs> <laughs> you're just you're just you're just thinking big thoughts, you know. <laughs> thinking big thoughts. Then you got Lloyd Bridges. Uh, he's a farmer, a good farmer, knows his soil. And uh, let's see, you got Mick Williams. Uh, let's see, who was the actor who played Mick Williams? I always forget his name. He he later played the voice of um, I think Winnie the Pooh. Um, oh wow! And uh, he's slow, southern, and dependable. And then there's Sergeant Porter, which is Herbert Rudley. He's got a lot on his mind. So there's a lot of poetry in describing these characters. And, and Burgess Meredith, who that very same year portrayed Ernie Pyle in a terrific movie called The Story yeah. of G.I. Joe, he's, he, his narration is great. And then, then we have a song, you know, uh, uh, The Walk in the Sun song, sung by Earl Robinson. And um, in learning about the, the making of the movie, Lewis Milestone talks about the original intent was to have a number of ballads throughout right. the movie and they had they cut them down to the bone i think there are only three or four now but i find them to be very poetic some people find them to be very dated but i i enjoy them very much uh, i think what's, I, yeah go ahead i just i just want to point out steve that that i don't think your listeners can really appreciate them until they've been on a road trip and had you sing them in the car <laughs> that's, that's that's pretty next level stuff i have to say well, you got to understand, I was a kid who grew up with a tape recorder that I could record all my favorite movies on. This is long, long before videotape or DVDs. I would literally put the microphone next to the TV and tape these movies. And, and you know, it's funny, in those, in those days, I didn't edit anything. So I had commercials, too. You know, playing those commercials 60 years later is really kind of a hoot to see uh, you know, the, old, the old Winston tastes good like a cigarette should commercials. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, re I remember like learning the, um, the intros and outros of uh, the Twilight Zone that way. I would record them because I wanted to be the cool kid. So I knew all of the, the, the Rod Serling uh, introductions on the Twilight Zone. Submitted for your approval. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting, uh, A Walk in the Sun was literally one of the last war movies released in, in, in the period of the war. It was actually released after the war ended, which I think yeah. hurt its box office chances. Um, it was produced independently. Uh, I think Lewis Milestone raised the money out of Chicago and 20th Century Fox released the film. So most people think it's a Fox film, but it's really more of an indie. And uh, just to, just to uh, mention it, I actually had the rights to remake A Walk in the Sun for a while, um, but with that, that didn't happen either. It's tough to get war movies off the ground. That's why I think that we were very fortunate to get our Silent Night movie. Uh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a, there's, a curious, uh, there's a curious thing I didn't know until recently about A Walk in the Sun, and that it was shot on the 20th Century Fox Ranch alongside another war film of the period, A Bell for Adano. Oh, interesting. With John Hodiak. And, and A Bell for Adano uh, resonates with me because in the latter part of my career in the Army, I was a civil affairs officer. And A Bell for Adano is uh, the only movie other than Three Kings that is about uh, what was then called military government and now is called a civil affairs branch of the Army. Um, so I have not seen a Bell for Adano. Does it take take place after the war has ended in Italy? No, no. It it takes place during the war, and it's about um, a John Hodiak plays uh, plays a uh, Major Tripolo, is an, an Italian American who'd been a city clerk. So when he joins the army, they make him a civil affairs officer, 
uh, military government officer, and they they give him the charge of this small Italian town that's been um, captured by the Allies, and he's supposed to you know bring democracy to Adano, and he uh, he asks the people what they need, and they say we need a bell. The fascists took our bell to melt it down for the war effort, and he sets about trying to find them a bell so that they can have the center of their their town life back it's a it's a charming lovely little story uh based on a novel by john hersey um who who felt that those military government officers were really the future and then and actually winston churchill made the same made the same argument that it was the the soldiers who would help the people in the uh fascist countries make the transition to democracy that were really the the uh, way way to the future Hersey's the same author of The War Lover, correct? Uh, the War Lover and Hiroshima and uh, a number of other famous novels. So, yeah. Well, being a, a being a, a, a civilian or, or what did you call it? Uh, in civil Af affairs. Civil affairs officer in Afghanistan, you were faced with a lot of the same challenges that were featured in the movie, right? Yeah. I mean, it was about you were trying to help these people make a transition from life under the Taliban to life of, of, under... Um, a uh, a less fascist, but certainly no less corrupt government. So, any bells involved? Uh, no, we didn't have any bells. A couple of minarets here and there, but no bells. <laughs> well, uh, Walk in the Sun was the first uh, war movie I covered in my book. Um, I still have treasure a wonderful letter I got from Harry Brown, who had read my chapter and commented on it, which was a, a coup for me. Yeah, no, it was great. And I, I did find uh, some information from Lewis Milestone, an interview had done. He had passed before I got a chance to interview him. Um, by the way, Lewis Milestone directed the original Ocean's Eleven uh, in 1960. <laughs> so there, and, and I think uh, Richard Benedict, who is in A Walk in the Sun, I think he plays Trinella, who's the, uh, who's the interpreter. He's in. A, he's in. He's one of the Ocean's Eleven people. He's plays right. Curly wow. Stephens. But uh, four years after, uh, now in World War II movie uh, history, after uh, the war, there was a period where war films were just not made because uh, the studio felt that people were tired of war films, and so the revival of the war film, particularly the World War II film comes in 48 49 particularly uh in 49 with three films that were released that year uh 12 o'clock high battleground and the sands of iwo jima were all 1949 titles and there were some others as well uh i think home of the brave was a 1949 mm. title as well yeah. um but battleground for me was a a real important film because i i got a chance to interview at length Robert Pyrosh, who won the Oscar Ooh. that year for original screenplay uh, for Battleground. And Pyrosh, interestingly, would later create the series Combat and, and write the pilot for that series. Um, uh, Battleground, if you're not familiar with Battleground, uh, it was directed one of, by one of the great action filmmakers of all time, that's William Wellman. Uh, known for so many different films. He did the original Bo Jest. He did The High and the Mighty, uh, lots of Westerns, uh, just a real tremendous filmmaker. And uh, it has a great cast, um, Van Johnson, uh, John Hodiak, who you just mentioned uh, from uh, Belfredano, he's, he's in it. Um, and James Whitmore, who plays the Sergeant Kinney, was nominated for the Oscar that year for Best Supporting Actor. It ended up losing to another war film actor, Dean Jagger, who played uh, the Major Stovall character in uh, 12 O'Clock High. Yeah. Uh, what do you remember about Battleground, Rory? Oh, my God. It's, 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 it's still one of my favorite films. I mean, and, 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 and it has in common with A Walk in the Sun of really capturing that life in an infantry squad and in an infantry platoon. I mean, just the, you know, everything from the, um, from the, the random conversations to the, to the, you know, the, the kind of frat boy joshing around antics um, to the, to the moments of, you know, uh, of, of looking out for each other, you know, the way my, one of my favorite moments in the movie is, is when the Van Johnson character, Holly is, is trying to run away. 
and and the replacement chases him down. He goes, I'm with you, Holly. Like he thinks Holly's up to something. And because because, you know, at the end of the day, soldiers in combat are very aware of how they appear to, you know, the other the other soldiers around them. You know, Holly becomes heroic because this kid's expecting him to be. He won't run away if somebody can see him running away. And it's just, I think Pyrosh's script absolutely captures that that instinct you have of not just self-preservation, but the self-preservation of your opinion of yourself. You know, and, and it's just a classic, classic moment that is beautifully, uh, beautifully filmed. Well, Pyrosh was not only a successful screenwriter in Hollywood, he was a veteran of yeah. Battle of the Bulge. He was an infantry sergeant in the 35th Infantry Division. And uh, he told me that uh, when he sold his project, the project was originally sold to Dory Sherry when he was head of RKO. So this started out as an RKO picture. And for his research, I believe this is about 47 or 48, Pyrosh went to Europe and he started nosing around the battlefield in, in the Ardennes. And interestingly, he found a foxhole that he remembered being in. Oh, wow. wow. So I'm pretty crazy stuff. And uh, he uh, he talked a lot. He, I interviewed, like I said, I interviewed him at length. And he's uh, he's a character, interesting guy. Uh, his His memory of the bulge that that you know that December forty four was just the conditions were so horrifying with the weather. Yeah. You know, I think about being an infantryman going into combat and having to deal with the enemy firing at you, but think about having to deal with the enemy firing at you while you're freezing to death. Um, there's a there's a terrific book that nobody's read called Roll Me Over uh, by a guy named Ray Gantner and and and. He, Ray, Ray was not an 18-year-old kid who went to war. Ray was like 30 and had a deferment. He had a wife and two kids, a degree from Syracuse, and he was running maybe as the manager of a radio station. And he finally felt like he couldn't take any more deferments. And he enters the Army probably in the summer of 1944 and goes to basic training as a 30-year-old educated man. And, and he presents the whole experience in such a different light than you know, an 18 or 19 or 20 year old kid does because he's got an education, he's been around, you know, he knows things. And and one of the things he talks about is how miserable he was because he's not afraid to say, like, I, I hated it. I hated the whole thing. I hated everything about it. I hated being cold. I hated, you know, being up to my knees in water, you know, on, on uh, you know, while being on watch. I mean, just everything about it. And And to me, it's one of the best books about the war because he doesn't, not talk about those things he talks about like the day-to-day -day misery of what it took you know there was you know they, they they say that you know combat is like hours weeks months of boredom you know punctuated by moments of sheer terror and and you get that and 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 gatner was no slouch because he, he got a battlefield commission which at some level was harder to get than the medal of honor um for his you know his 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 valor and his leadership in combat so you know it's it's just one of the best books really about the war from an infantryman's point of view and my father-in-law was a combat engineer in normandy uh, i think he arrived uh, on the beach d plus five and he talked a little bit about he was the he was the unit uh, medic so he was responsible for administering basic first aid and then of course if somebody got hit pretty badly they'd be sent to a field hospital but right yeah that the idea of you know shaving in, in with some water in your helmet and you know not having any hot water and uh just uh just the the the, the niceties of life being totally unavailable and the fact that I, one thing he told me was i guess when when it got to be winter they would take newspapers and stuff them in their pants for insulation. Yeah, yeah, um, and and you you know there's there's a, the, there's that nice uh, there's that nice uh, scene in um, in Battleground where Van Johnson gets some eggs and the lengths he's going to to try and keep his eggs because you know having fresh eggs are just like you know you'd have the powdered eggs the army would give you, but you never had fresh eggs. So he's like going so far out of his way to try and keep these eggs and he finally has to like put the helmet on his head and 
get on with the war. <laughs> yeah, there was egg on his face for, for good reason. <laughs> but I'm pumped. Yeah, no, exactly. Stay for the trivia, stay for the jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so, A Walk in the Sun came out in 49. The same year, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we get the Air War in a very unique presentation in a, a movie called 12 O'Clock High. And Rory and I have talked about this movie endlessly. I'm staring at Rory's uh, picture on this Zoom call, and he has the Toby mug that is a British drinking mug. They, I guess they put beer in it, right, right? I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I certainly would. It would hold a lot of beer. A lot of beer. Uh, but anyway, in, in 12 O'Clock High, uh, which is a wonderful movie, uh, basically uh, Gregory Peck plays a general, General Savage, who's assigned to headquarters of the 8th Air Force in England. Uh, but when something goes wrong with one of the squadrons, its commander becomes too identified with his men. Uh, in, in other words, he's not as hard on them as he, he can be. Uh, Peck's character, General Savage, is forced to take over the squadron. And in this squadron, whenever there's a raid, they take the Toby mug and they put it... Uh, now, do they put it face outward, Rory, or do they put it yeah, face inward? They, they turn the mug to face the room so that... Um... So that they they that everybody knows there's a mission on without anybody saying anything. This movie I, I thought was just just terrific on many levels. It starts kind of in a flashback, or actually I should say, it starts in present day, which for this movie would have been 1948. And Dean Jagger, who later we discover is Major Stovall, the adjutant for the eighth uh, for the 918th Bombardment Group is uh, visiting London on a vacation after the war and he stops off in a little antique shop and he sees this Toby mug and he purchases it and then he rides a bicycle out to the field. Uh, I guess it was called Archberry yeah. in the uh, movie. <clears throat> and he's, in the, he's walking along the runways which are now covered with, with foliage because they have been abandoned. And you see the um, one of the towers with the wind socks still hanging from the tower. And then you hear the kind of ghostly uh, chorus of bless them all, bless them all, the long and the short and the tall. And then we're back in, in 1940, 42, and you hear the engines of the planes. I thought that was an amazing opening. I, I think it's one of the great frame stories in, in movie history to this day. I mean, just the way they... They drop you in and then bring you back. And then at the very end, it's, you know, he, he puts the mug back and it's, you know, it's, it's done. But it's just a just a brilliant device and, and used perfectly. There's a great moment early on when uh, Savage is assigned to Archbearer and he drives up to the um, front <laughs> gate and the sergeant just says, go on through. And he stops and says, do you know me, sergeant? No, sir. I but I saw it was a staff car. And what does Gregory Peck says? He says Goering could have been. <laughs> and oh, that uh, that actor who played the gate guard, interestingly, was a very very young Ken Toby. Yeah. Who uh, two years later was in the thing. Uh, the yes. Great, yeah. And, and playing a captain, so we got promoted. So he got promoted. <laughs> Uh, but I love Gregory Peck says he kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, tells the guy, Sergeant, this is a Air Force base. It's not a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> but One the, more thing. If you or any man in this post fails to salute me, even if I'm so much as a block away, you'll wonder what fell on Fell me. on you. Exactly. It's so funny because I think when um, when Francis Ford Coppola and Edmund North uh, wrote Patton uh, a decade or two decades later, yeah. um, there, there's a similar sequence when, when Patton arrives in North Africa uh, and takes over Lloyd Friedendahl's <laughs> unit. <laughs> he remember he's walking down the hallway and he bumps into a guy lying on the floor and <laughs> the, 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 one of the officers, well, what are you doing down there? So, and he says, I was sleeping. And so Patton says, Stay down there, son. You're the only guy who knows what the hell they're doing in this outfit. <laughs> Great stuff. Great. No, stuff. I, I, you know, they, they for years and and to this day, I'm sure, uh, twelve o'clock high has been used in uh, by all of the services in in uh, leadership classes, 
and 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 in, and in corporate life as well. You know, they just uh, there's so many scenes in there that you can just go. Here's how you do this. Here's how you don't do that. The whole scene with um, with him berating Gately um, is just a classic. <laughs> just like this is this is you know this is a uh, an ass chewing, and this is you know how it's administered. Oh yeah, no, that's a great sequence too. Yeah. Um, I was I was very fortunate to interview a lot of the creators in that show, um, Cy Bartlett and Bernie Lay Jr. Oh yeah. They wrote the original novel uh, and they adapted their own novel to the screenplay. And then I also got a chance to ch uh, interview Henry King, who directed the film. Uh, so it was a, uh, it was just a very interesting, long production history. They were having some issues with the uh, with the uh, storyline. There were some problems. Interestingly, um, the the movie is actually based on actual events that took place during the war, somewhat augmented yeah. by their drama but there i think the name of the original bombardment group cap uh, general was i think is it armstrong Rome? armstrong yeah it was a 306 bomb group they just tripled it to make the 918 right exactly exactly and this is a time during the war where uh daylight bombing had not been proven as effective so the first the first air groups there were trying to prove that it was much more effective than nighttime bombing. Any particular reason, Rory, why the British did not want to uh, bomb at daytime? Is it just because they were being more protective of their airmen? Um, because it, it um, a, their planes were not as well protected. I mean, the even even the Lancaster, the Halifax, or the Sterling did not have the armament of of the B seventeen or the B twenty four, and they also didn't think it was. They thought the cost did not yield the reward, essentially. And, and, you know, until really until the Americans have uh, fighter planes that could go all the way to the target, it, it never really was proven. I mean, when they did try to fight their way to the target at places like Schweinfurt and Regensburg, um, they lost a lot of airplanes. So, you know, the British looked at that and, and uh, you know, they, no, <laughs> no, no, thank you. Well, I, it's funny because I once read, and you can tell me if this is true, that the um, the effectiveness of the bombing on German industry was limited, but what the bombing campaigns did was completely disintegrate the German fighter corps. They just killed most of their yeah. pilots so that there were no German fighter pilots available for ground support. Yeah, there, well, there was there was um, the 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 strategic the strategic air campaign by the British and the Americans was not nearly as effective as it, as it had been imagined in the 1930s. Like the theory did not you know bear out. They, the planes they took too many losses. They did not they did not have the effect on on German industry that they ever imagined. They did not bomb the population into submission any more than the Germans were able to bomb the, uh, you know, the British into submission. But yeah, the one effect that it did have is when they landed at, um, you know, when Normandy finally happens, when, when D-Day finally happens, there is no Luftwaffe to contest the skies over the invasion beaches. You know, the, the famous longest day scene with the two German fighters that, you know, flew over, over uh, Omaha and Utah is, is it. That's the whole, that's the, you know, participation of the Luftwaffe because the, the rest of them were either defending the Reich or were, you know, crashed, so. No, no, very true. Um, you mentioned earlier the um, Gately situation. That was uh, that was played by the wonderful American actor Hugh Marlowe, who plays yeah. a, rather, a rather stuffy, uh, not very, uh, uh, you know, not very heroic character at the beginning of the movie. But I thought one of the great elements of the movie was uh, was how he evolves and in fact the sequence and i won't spoil it for the audiences who have not seen 12 o'clock high the the sequence where he's visited uh by by general savage in the hospital at one point was worked over very carefully for months they had to try to get that just right yeah um and you know the, the so that that was definitely a movie and as i mentioned uh dean jagger was nominated for best uh, actually won the oscar for best yes. uh, supporting actor that year i be believe the film was also nominated for best picture yeah. uh, uh daryl zanuck who ran 20th century fox d 
did a number of World War II movies. He was very patriotic, as were most of the studios in terms of supporting the war. And, and after the war, they continued that, as I mentioned, three or four years after the hostilities ended. Um, so uh, in my book, uh, after I covered uh, Battleground and 12 O'Clock High, I decided to move ahead and cover a few of the more, uh, well, in the, when I wrote this, they were more recent, but I did, uh, I did cover Patton uh, in, from 1970. And you're a big fan of that film as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's funny. I was, I, was, I was talking to someone the other day about, um, they're trying to write a screenplay about you know, a, a biography. And I, and I said, you have to, you know, you, you can't put in everything. And, 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 you know, in the movie Patton, I mean, Patton had such an interesting life. You know, he's, he's in the Olympics in 1912. He chases Pancho Villa. He's, he fights in World War I. He starts, you know, he helps start the, uh, you know, U.S. Army Tank Corps. I mean, he did so many things. You can't tell the whole story. I mean, he could now if he did like a miniseries or a limited series. Um, but the, the filmmakers chose to pick this, like, this time in Patton's life. Like, how do we tell you what you need to understand about Patton? And they, and they picked that time in his life from, you know, from taking over in Tunisia to the end of the war. And, and that's it. That's, that's the story. Um, and that's really, you know, the, the, essential, the essential part of Patton's life that, you know, if you're, gonna, if you're only going to have two hours or three hours to tell a story, that's, the, that's what people need to know about, about Patton. It had an interesting history. Um, you know, when I was at UCLA, I actually got a job doing some research for a writer named James R. Webb. And James R. Webb, if you know his credits, he's credited with some great movies. He did Porkchop Hill. He won an Oscar for How the West Was Won. He did Vera Cruz. He did uh, Cape Fear. Uh, he did a, a really terrific uh, 3D Western. It's one of my favorites called The Charge at Feather River. But he was kind of a history buff, and he had hired me to do some research for a book he was writing. But uh, he told me that uh, Patton originally started as a William Wyler project. Now, William Wyler, wonderful multi-Oscar winning director known for the best years of our lives, one of yeah. our favorites. And of course, he did Ben Hur later on. But uh, Willie Wyler uh, hired James Webb to write the screenplay. And from what I gathered from Frank McCarthy, the producer who I interviewed, uh, they were going for more of an historical look at Patton. I'm not sure if they covered some of the earlier incidents in his life, mm -hmm. but uh, the, uh, the approach to the military campaigns was much more history oriented as opposed to stylistically oriented. Uh, and the script was rejected all over Hollywood by every actor. They thought it was too much of a glorification. Now, this is the late 60s, yeah. and we were uh, in the middle of the Vietnam War, and so the, the Hollywood was very careful about how they were approaching war stories. And, um, and then what happened is William Wyler's doctor told him that a shoot in Spain with a lot of physicality would not be good for his health. No. As most of us know, Willie... Willie Wyler was suffering from hearing loss from being a documentary filmmaker during World War II in those B-17s. So, um, so he, he left the project and Frank McCarthy hired a young director uh, who was uh, just uh, enjoying the success of the first Planet of the Apes movie. And that, of course, was Franklin Schaffner. Yeah. It's, it's uh, I mean, it's, it's quite an achievement. And my favorite thing about Patton is it you know it, it it is made in the late 60s and it comes out in what 69 and 70, 70. 70. well it's up for the 70 oscar but i think it's released in 69. um and i what what's fascinating about it is you know we're at this very contentious time in america american history and you know people would watch Patton and come out with completely different interpretations of what it meant you know for for doves it was the it, it was an anti-war film you know, look at, you know, look at, look at what happens. And then for Hawks, it was, you know, oh my God, see, see, you know, you need to have a strong military and strong leaders and stuff. I mean, everybody, everybody who saw it seemed to like what they thought about it reflected what they felt as opposed to the movie telling you what to feel, which I, I think is kind of a brilliant achievement for, for the filmmakers is that you, you could make up your own mind as to what, how you felt about that. Well, we have to thank Francis Ford Coppola because Coppola was the one who 
when he was given the assignment, and Coppola was a fairly new screenwriter in Hollywood. He had worked on uh, another World War II movie uh, uh, with, uh, I believe it was with Gore Vidal. They, they worked on the script for um, Is Paris Burning? And mm -hmm. he was, his hands were a little bit tied with that project because <laughs> the rule of thumb in those days is you could not mention the communists. And of course, <laughs> if you don't mention the communists, you can't really tell the story of the, uh, the, uh, the uh, you know, the turning Paris into a free city because the communists were very involved in that. But Coppola came up with that very arresting opening where George Patton goes on the stage and basically turns to the audience and says, no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country. <laughs> and, and people would look at that and either think Patton is crazy or Patton's a genius, or Patton's a hero, but it was really kind of a Rorschach test for the audience as to what you thought about it. Now, being a military historian, what is your evaluation of George Patton? I, I think he was, you know, he's, he, you know, the, the old joke is that he was one of those guys that, you know, you know, break glass and take out in time of war. You know, he was, he was certainly, um, <laughs> He had a lot of opinions about a lot of things, almost none of which would stand up today. Um, he, you know, certainly a bigot, probably a racist, um, and was was not a guy that you probably would want over at Thanksgiving dinner. And yet he was a genius. He was an incredibly well-read. I mean, you, you see in the movie, he's, he's talking about all these things. You know, he, he if you go to the Patton Museum, which is now at Fort Benning, Georgia. It used to be at Fort Knox. But if you go to the Patton Museum, they have Patton's library. And you go into Patton's books, and Patton was dyslexic. So you think of all the books he read, and he was dyslexic, and how hard that must have been. That man was driven. And all of his books have annotations on the side. Like, he did not just read a book. He participated in a conversation with the author of the book he was reading by writing down what his thoughts were as he was reading the book. All of his books are like that. I mean, he was a, an incredibly brilliant guy who said a lot of stupid things and yet was very talented at, at leading troops in combat. Do you think if he had not slapped those two soldiers in Sicily, he would have been given command of the Italian campaign? I, I suspect he would have. Because he was, you know, I mean, you, 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 I mean, Eisenhower was a genius in the sense that Eisenhower knew that everybody had to get along with each other. And he understood what Patton's limitations were, just like he understood what Montgomery's limitations were. Um, and they were both prima donnas and they couldn't get along with one another. And, and Eisenhower's genius, even though he had never led troops in combat, was he had to manage all these people, all of these personalities, um, which was his, you know, his gift of the war effort. So, you know, I, I think that I'm not enough of a patent historian to know exactly what would have transpired, but certainly, you know, Eisenhower on the one hand had to deal with patent for, for, you know, for reasons of, of public relations, which were a very real thing in World War II that say, you know, the Nazis or the Soviets didn't have to deal with. Um, but he also knew that he, he needed patent to win the war. And, 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 it, and, and it worked out because of you know, the whole deception campaign about where the allies were going to land. And they conveniently used Patton, who had been shelved, to build up the whole um, the, the whole deception plan about that we were going to land at Pas-de-Calais um, with, with an army commanded by Patton that didn't exist. So. In fact, there was, it's funny because not too long ago, there was talk in Hollywood. I think Tom Cruise was attached to it. The whole story of that, that campaign to, to make rubber tanks and, and yeah. the magician, wasn't he a magician? Um, yeah, they had magicians. They had all kinds of people, set designers, set builders. I mean, all those people found work during the war, not only in, um, they, they had people from Hollywood go uh, camouflage the, um, the tops of the aircraft plants in Southern California. So that airplanes would think it was something else. It wouldn't look like an airplane, an airplane factory. Um, but then a, a lot of those guys uh, made their way to Europe and they did the rubber tanks. They did all those things, um, which, yeah, my friend Jonathan uh, Gone wrote a book about them. Um, 
and and they and they deserve to have their story told because it's a brilliant story and the entire operation whereby um they kept the germans guessing as to where the invasion was going to take place was was it was a huge part of the success of the invasion and i think it's what's um oh what's the uh what oh eye of the needle the donald sutherland film uh where he plays a german spy in the uh, in the british islands um and and discovers that that you know this that there's this whole make-believe army so it features in a lot of hollywood stories oh, yeah and the, the other movie that always comes to mind is 36 hours with james garner being captured and made it seems like it's 10 years after the war and right trying to grill, <laughs> grill him for other details which i thought was pretty pretty cool um <clears throat> Do you, now, you mentioned that uh, A Walk in the Sun, Battleground, 12 O'Clock High, Patton are some of your favorites. Do you have another film that you would like to talk about? Um, I think, well, I want to go back to, I want to double back to A Walk in the Sun for a minute, because there's there's one thing that's, that's interesting um, that's in the novel that isn't in the film. And that is that the, uh, the Dana Andrews character, Tyne, in, in the book, he's a corporal. Right. He's not one of the one of the staff sergeants who were the squad leaders in the platoon. And yet everybody sort of defers to him. And and I thought that was a really interesting thing that Harry Brown captured that that there's the army, you know, there, there's the administrative army. And then in combat, people tend to, to to turn to the people they perceive as as the best leaders or the people who are best qualified to get them out of this scrape. So a corporal in that platoon is pretty far down the food chain but everybody trusts him and everybody listens to him. And I don't know whether it was the, the technical advisor that they used who said, no, that would never happen. But I mean, I, I thought that when, when Milestone made the choice not to capture that dynamic, I, 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 I don't think it made the movie better, put it that way. Yeah, that is an interesting dynamic. Um... What, what is interesting about Harry Brown's book is a lot of that dialogue appears ber verbatim in Robert Rossum's screenplay. I mean, the total, it was so good that there was no reason to change a lot yeah. of it. Uh, um, definitely, definitely. Another movie I'd like to talk about before we end our discussion is um, another Robert Pyrosh movie that was released uh, in 1962, the same year as The Longest Day, which is Hell is for Heroes. Yeah. <laughs> Bobby Darren. Bobby Darren, uh, Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen, of course, mo most of his most, more, more memorable roles, Steve's in uniform. And uh, this movie was interesting. Uh, I also talked to Bob Pyrish about this movie. Uh, interestingly, he was going to be directing this movie. This was going to be written, produced, and directed by Bob Pyrosh, who certainly at that time in 61, 62, was one of the preeminent World War II writers. But uh, as Bob told me, he got into a, a little thing with Steve McQueen. Um, uh, <laughs> and that, of course, <laughs> at that time, McQueen was on the rise. Uh, it was a little before the great, excuse me, it was a little bit before the great escape. And um, uh, so he wasn't exactly a superstar, but I think he had enough power to get Pyrosh fired. So unfortunately, they got rid of Bob, but I, they did replace him with Don Siegel, who was the perfect choice to direct. I mean, Don Siegel is one of our greatest directors. We know him from, of course, Dirty Harry. He did the original in, uh, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, just a fine director. A lot of, lot, lot of his pictures are associated with Clint Eastwood. And um, they, uh, they re I think uh, Pyrosh's original title for the movie, interestingly, was called Separation Hill. And I, I, it's a terrible title. I think it's, <laughs> Bob explained to me it was, um, it was because uh, the, there are certain places that separate the men from the boys, that right. kind of thing. But it was a little too crazy. So they came up with Hellos for Heroes. Bob said to me, what does that mean? I said, well, you know, I think I, I, if you're a hero, sometimes you just end up in hell. It's maybe a perceived hell or a real hell. But um, it's one it of means, my favorite. Yeah. It, it means it's a title. I want to go see that movie. Hell is for Heroes. Oh, yeah, I'm going to see that. Exactly. Exactly. Separation Hill, not so much. Not so much. Not so much. But uh, we get uh, McQueen, of course, plays Private Reese, who used to be a master sergeant, but he got busted. Uh, McQueen was very good 
at playing guys on the edge. And interestingly, yeah. the same year he does a walk, excuse me, a, a, the same year he does Hell is for Heroes, he does The War Lover. And uh, yeah. uh, Captain Rickson in The War Lover and Private Reese and Hell is for Heroes are very similar characters. These are guys who are terrific soldiers in battle, but when the chips are, uh, you know, when the pressure's off, they do strange things. And in, in Reese's case, in Hell is for Heroes, he goes into town against orders and has a drink. And, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's just lost a battlefield commission because he went crazy behind the lines when the pressure was off. And right. he's an interesting character. You got Bobby Darren playing, uh, you know, kind of a, a scrounger who's always finding loot and stuff. Uh, kind of remind me a little bit of the Ben Gazzara character in The Bridge at Raymond. <laughs> yes. And uh, Fess Parker plays the, the platoon sergeant. Um, uh, he's terrific. Uh, we got, uh, let's see, Nick Adams plays a Polish uh, displaced yep. person. Yep. And, uh, and then Harry Gardino is kind of the counterpoint to Reese. He's the professional, you know, he's the, he's the by the book sergeant. And um, if you don't know the basic plot, and this is, uh, this is kind of based on fact, as Pyrosh uh, was reporting from historical moments, uh, it takes place uh, around the time of the Battle of the Bulge, and uh, an American unit is forced to uh, move off to the north, and they can only leave one platoon behind uh, to cover ground that usually a company or a battalion covers. So uh, Fess Parker's platoon and Harry Gardino's squad has to cover a lot of ground that would normally be a lot of guys, and they have almost nobody. Yes, it's called an economy of force operation. There you go. There you go. And um, <laughs> and, and Bob and, Newhart's there to help, so it's all right. And Bob Newhart, <laughs> who's a typist driving a Jeep on the Siegfried line, takes a wrong turn, ends up in this ridiculous situation. So uh, I have to say, it, it adds a certain lightness to the story. And there is some, there is some humor in the piece. I, yeah. I think that... Um, it's a it's a great movie. The other person I want to I've mentioned two other characters, uh, James Coburn, who was yep. McQueen's buddy in the Magnificent Seven and would soon appear with him in The Great Escape. He plays um, a fixer um, yep. who's um, who fixes motors and things like that. And then the other person uh, who's one of my favorite character actors is Mike Kellen, who plays Kalinsky, who he speaks Polish and can communicate with uh, yeah. Nick Adams, Homer character, and that, that they make up the squad. Um, so yeah, no, that's one of my favorite movies. It was shot interestingly. It's supposed to be the uh, near the winter of '44, but they shot it in uh, Redding, California, during one of the hottest summers ever. <laughs> so it was a bit challenging, and I think I thought Siegel did a great job. Well, Rory, you know, you and I could go on for 12 hours talking about war pictures. We've barely scraped the surface, but I think um, we'll have you back and we'll do this again. We'll pick some other films that we enjoy. But uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, directing debut. You just did a film called The 5th of January. I uh, did. It was kind of a thesis project for you, right? Yeah, I um, so uh, because because I retired from the army, I have the uh, GI Bill, and uh, you know, as as some of you may have heard, there was this like massive pandemic that uh, blanketed the world, um, and um, I I was actually working on a on a, a TV series for Apple at the time called Invasion, and everything shut down, and I thought, well, I don't know how long this is going to last, but uh, I have the GI Bill, I may as well go back to school. So it started out on Zoom uh going to school on zoom so i'm 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 sensitive to all those kids what all those kids went through over the last couple of years um but yeah so i i i've certainly worked on a number of films but i never i didn't do a lot of writing and i i uh i didn't do a lot of producing and i'd never directed a film so i ended up uh, writing producing and directing a short film uh, which is about uh, a young woman coming home um and she finds that her father is preparing to go to the Stop the Steel rally in Washington on January 6th. And it's about that conversation they have, because unfortunately, I've, I've had some of those conversations with people that I was close to over the last uh, couple of years. And so I was just trying to capture that moment. 
Well, having seen the film, and it's a very, very well put together seven minutes, I thought it was terrific. Oh, thank you, buddy. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that we can collaborate on some films in the future, as I know we will. Uh, every, everyone, we are, have been listening to Rory Elward, and our discussion of war movies will continue in the future, I am sure. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and we're on the Lock 22 Network. Here it's always Saturday night, as I always like to say. And thank you, Rory, so much for joining us. My pleasure, my friend. Okay. <laughs>